Hello, and thank you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are slowly closing out section 4.4, the first positive task of schizoanalysis. Uh, looking forward to everyone uh, helping us sort of make our way through this. There is a good amount that is coming in this next paragraph. There's already been a ton in this entire uh, section. It's going to be a whole thing, but we will do our best to get through it. Um, this first paragraph I'm going to be reading is a massive one. I will share it inside of the chat. Uh, if anyone wants to go ahead and follow along as I read, you're more than welcome to. Uh, better text. There you go. Thank you, Discord. Uh, otherwise, without further ado, I will dive right into uh, this last few paragraphs. Now, I'll, I'll move back a little bit because they, they start with the answer and we should probably start with the question. Um, the previous paragraph, um, previous paragraph, uh, well, a few of them have been discussing death, how death is coded, death plays a space inside of everything we do. Uh, the previous paragraph says, opens with, the only modern myth is the myth of zombies, mortified schizos, good for work, brought back to reason um the the proper oedipalized uh, uh proletariat who's able to do his job and do it well um the i'm just gonna read part of it and then we'll continue on he is brave too he is decorated like crazy in man's game of chance the death instinct the silent instinct is decidedly well placed perhaps next to egoism it takes the place of zero and roulette the house always wins so too does death the law of large numbers works for death. Uh, the question then goes on. Once it is said that capitalism works on the basis of decoded flows as such, how is it that it is infinitely further removed from desiring production than we were, than were the primitive or even barbarian systems, which nonetheless code and overcode flows? Once it is said that desiring production is itself a decoded and deterritorialized production, how do we explain that capitalism, with its axiomatic, its statistics, performs an infinitely vaster repression of the production than do the preceding regimes, which nonetheless did not lack the necessary repressive means? Uh, the question being, capitalism doesn't code or decode it, it plays with axiomatics it it is somehow yet even further removed why is this the case why is it so much so much so much further away from actual desiring production the answer is the death instinct if we call instinct in general the conditions of life that are historically and socially determined by the relations of production and anti-production in a system we know that molar social production and molecular desiring production must be evaluated both from the viewpoint of their identity in nature and from the viewpoint of their difference in regime. But it could be that these two aspects, nature and regime, are, in a sense, potential and are actualized only in inverse proportion, which means that where the regimes are the closest, the identity in nature is on the contrary at its maximum. And where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. If we examine the primitive or the barbarian constellations, we see that the subjective essence of desire as production is referred to large objectities, to the territorial or the despotic body, which acts as natural or divine preconditions that thus ensure the coding or the overcoding of the flows of desire 
by introducing them into systems of representation that are themselves objective. Hence, it can be said that the identity in nature between the two productions is completely hidden there, as much by the difference between the objective socius and the subjective full body of desiring production as by the difference between the qualified codes and overcoding of social production and the chains of decoding or of deterritorialization belonging to desiring production, and by the entire repressive apparatus represented in the savage prohibitions, the barbarian law, and the right of anti-production. And yet, the difference in regime, far from being accentuated and deepened, is on the contrary reduced to a minimum, because desiring production as an absolute limit remains an exterior limit, or else stays unoccupied as an internal and displaced limit, with the result that the machines of desire operate on this side of their limit within the framework of the socius and its codes. That is why the primitive codes, and even the despotic overcodings, testify to a polyvocity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire. The parts of the desiring machine function in the very workings of the social machine. The flows of desire enter and exit through the codes that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of the socio-desiring apparatus. And it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops grafting the desiring machines onto the social machine and implanting the social machine in the desiring machines. Death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within. This is especially true of the system of cruelty where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanism of surplus value as well as in the movement of the finite blocks of debt. But even in the system of despotic terror where debt becomes infinite and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make it a latent instinct, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law and an experience for the overcoded subjects at the same time as anti-production remains separate as a share owing to the overlord. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a light start to the week. This is an easy one, right? It's uh, this is why we, we start with the, um, we dive right in. We start with the Everclear before we move on to anything else. That's how it's a good night out. I think, um, the death instinct as it exists within capital is their focus here. And their shift of what the death instinct is, is I think broken down uh, fairly well in this. There is a lot of nebulous language, but they're, they're moving to talking about the death instinct. They've been talking about the death instinct. Um, the, the play that they're trying to make and the point underneath this is that the death instinct, unlike this idea of it being as it currently operates as a transcendental reality of subjectivity, which traditional psychoanalysis plays at, especially Freud, but you know, for sure, all the other guys do that too. Uh, instead that there is contingent reasons that the death instinct operates as it does. This is about how there is a actual produced death instinct that has been mistaken for being transcendental. It's much of the same argument they've made throughout all of this. Uh, the idea being that Oedipus itself is not a transcendental 
thing that is the nature of every human subject, but instead is contingent on, you know, handfuls of things, including how the family is handled, how incest has changed, how representation operates, how desires manipulated, blah, blah, blah. Um, their famous statement, the incest didn't exist uh, in the primitive. This is the same setup that we're talking about the death instinct in a different way that puts it in historical context and talks about how it is produced and how it is handled now that separates it from then. Um, that's like my top line, I think, of the entire thing. Probably the most efficient way without us going through line by line, which we're about to do. Does anyone here have a different thought on that or our top line before we start going like three or four sentences at a time and really break it down? Uh, Ash asks in the chat, is this related to the role that the fear of death or dissolving of the ego and social bodies perceived to be representative of the prior in our lives? Hmm. I am not uh, able to fully say, because uh, I don't know if I, yeah, I, I don't know if I fully understand. I think I, I know what you're trying to say, but I don't want to presume. Um, uh, if someone else wants to answer uh, or ask, perhaps. Um... Yeah. Um, I, I will ignore for now. We'll come back to it. Uh, Jack, Lou, uh, Schofi, uh, Drew, anyone, please. Uh, it's open. Uh, top line, if anyone wants to try, I, or uh, if no one answers in like 20 seconds, I'll go ahead and just start going bit by bit through this entire thing. Uh, and we can make it through, I promise. It's worth it. Because death and how it sort of is handled inside of capitalism is a big deal. And I'm going to ramble for a few seconds, and then we'll see if anyone unmutes. Lou! Can you, can, can you hear me? I can. Okay, so so I'm cooking on the side, so I'm not I'm not very um, uh, I'm not uh, paying much attention. But I think at the very beginning of the paragraph, um, they they talk about what what they understand as an instinct. Have they talked about this in general before in the previous section? No, instinct is not super used throughout um, as a thing um, because. I mean, Deleuze hates the concept of how it kind of gets used. The phrasing and definition they give here is kind of what I was saying. It's if we call instinct in general, <clears throat> the conditions of life that are historically and socially determined by the relations of production and anti-production in a system. So the idea again is that instinct is produced and it's produced via contingent social and productive historical relations. Uh, uh, deeply materialist sort of uh, stance on that. Um, everything is produced, therefore also instinct is. Um, but instinct may be first, but it's, a, it's the conditions of life conditioned historically and socially. Um, they haven't used that before, no, I don't think. Uh, let, me, let me find out. I mean, they've used death instinct a ton. I don't, they haven't defined instinct until this point, no. 99% sure. Yeah, it's just interesting to keep track of what the specificity of instinct would be then in context. 
<laughs> That's just me trying to, uh, to relieve your need for someone talking to you. No, this is this is fair. Uh, uh, it's 148 uses of death instinct. I don't think any of them is not just tied to death instinct as a thing. Death instinct, death instinct. I'm just going to... Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that's the idea. They're they're focused on it. There is, I think, the first time they really push that. Okay, okay so but without having the text in front of me, this sounds like it may actually be them saying that instinct for them isn't anything specific, um, and um, we only talk about instinct as like that instinct. But instinct on its own isn't like a realm that we explore in its specificity because it is not um, a singular thing. Yeah, I think I think for them, instinct is um, impetus, um, like a base impetus that's socially determined and determined by the relations of production and anti-production. The thing that almost uh, you can't help. I think is why they utilize the term instinct here. You can't uh, undo it or go against it. But again, because you're produced, it's not like you can necessarily do that at all um, as a thing. So, yeah. Um, you, you keep you keep bringing up um, terms that are personal related with impetus and instinct. I was just curious because I know that in, um, in, in Desert Island, I think there is a short thing of the list called instinct and interest institution yep where, where he talks about instinct but it doesn't seem like there is an obvious way to connect this right now oh, well there probably is i just don't have the text in front of, in front of me let me uh see if i can grab it there it is have it somewhere. Um, uh, uh, what we call instincts and what we call institution essentially designate procedures of satisfaction. On the one hand, the organism reacts instinctively to external stimuli, extracting from the external world the elements which will satisfy its tendencies and needs. These elements comprise worlds that are specific to different animals. On the other hand, the subject institutes an original world between its tendencies and the external milieu, developing artificial means of satisfaction. These artificial means liberate an organism from nature through the subject, though they subject it to something else, transforming tendencies by introducing them into a new milieu. Instinct and institution are the two organized forms of possible satisfaction. Uh, again, uh, plays very much into that. Um, yeah, I like uh, this would be worth, this is a short piece too. I didn't realize it was so short. Interesting. I will download it and pop it up. I have it somewhere. It's in Desert Islands and other texts. I need to find the specific, uh, I'll just grab this. This is the PDF. Uh, with instinct, nothing goes beyond utility except beauty, whereas tendencies were indirectly satisfied by an institution, they are directly satisfied by instinct. There are no instinctive prohibitions or instinctive coercions. Only repugnancies are instinctive. 
In this case, it is the tendencies themselves in the form of internal psychological factors that trigger certain behaviors. Undoubtedly, too, these internal factors will not explain how they, even if they were the same, self-same factors, trigger different behaviors in different species. In other words, instinct finds itself at the intersection of a double causality, that of individual psychological factors and that of the species itself, hormones and species specificity. Thus, we ask ourselves only to what extent instinct can be reduced to the simple interest of the individual, in which case, if we take it to the limit, we should no longer speak of instinct, but rather reflex, tropism, habit, and intelligence. Or is it that instinct can be understood only within the framework of an advantage to the species, a good, an ultimate biological cause? Useful for whom is the question we rediscover here, but its meaning has changed. Instinct, seen from both angles, is given as a tendency launched in an organism at species-specific reactions. Oh, I like that. I haven't read Desert Island forever. I need to do that more. Um, thank you for pointing it out very much, Lou. Yeah, someone should should write something about that book. I can read it. I'm going Anyone? to post the PDF here, if that's okay. Will that help? Well, I oh. have it. I just want someone to explain to me the connection to anti-Oedipus. Oh, um... <laughs> So, specifically the way that instinct here, uh, the general conditions of life historically and socially determined by the relations of production of anti-production in a system is a direct, it feels like to me, one-to-one uh, -one for this. He's not utilizing the term species um, in the same way, but a species is ultimately some level of a uh, uh, conditions of life historically and socially determined. And if we talk about the relations of production, anti-production in any given system, which would include uh, personal as well as, you know, both sides of the regime, the uh, molecular as well as the molar, uh, the way desiring production sort of operates. We're talking about basically that base produced reactive side, the pure reactive side of any subjectivity or any organism uh, because that is ultimately purely determined by all these elements. Uh, I think he's describing in the, other piece that we just read, the one you talked about and got me to read, um, he's talking about it in the term of species in the sense of, um, you know, a, a dog barks instinctively or um, a horse, a mare uh, has a foal and the foal almost knows how to walk as soon as it's born. And it, it's a little hobbled, but it's fine. There's a lot of very interesting, instinctive sort of reactive behaviors. Those are, I think, what he's talking about when he says conditions of life historically and socially determined by relations of production, anti-production in a system. The system is the organism. The system is the species. And you can kind of play with the multiple sort of regimes or the, the massive sort of where the edges are thing. But it feels like it's identical here. It's the reactive nature of that organism is what he's talking about instinct. Um, it feels like that's what he's pointing at here. I, I think it might help to jump a few paragraphs back where they write, um, what we have tried to show, this is 335, what we have tried to show apropos of capitalism is how it inherited much from a transcendent, death-carrying agency, the despot signifier. 
but also how it brought about this agency's effusion in the full imminence of its own system. The full body, having become that of capital money, suppresses the distinction between production and anti-production. Everywhere it mixes anti-production with productive forces in the imminent reproduction of its own always widened limits, the axiomatic. The death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. It is this itinerary that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct. The death instinct is now only pure silence and its transcendent distinction from life, but it effuses all the more throughout all the imminent combinations of forms of the same life. Now well, skip that last sentence. But I, no, I think... I, I think thing, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying that's it. What you're talking about there and here is their continual play of how death is worked within each of the socii, which produces the subjectivity. Because if you go all the way back uh, to the primitive, uh, death is a thing that is, um, uh, the death instinct as it plays sort of works within uh, uh, the direct production of desire. It is the disconnection that allows other connections. It is in every moment. It is imminent. Death is everywhere. And that's this, it's almost a continual seriousness uh, and reality of every choice that you may make with your affiliative or your alliant lines. With the despot, the play has been made that the despot ultimately now has the power of death overall because the lines now all go through him. This, this raises the death instinct as we know it to a new level and makes it something that uh, sort of sits above all of us always alongside the despot as a threat that's continual and always there. The move that happens, well, I don't want to get into what they're about to say, but they're talking about kind of this, this, this idea that this instinct, this play is ultimately socially contingent and produced. And this is the process they're going through, it, as you just described it. As they open the book where they talk about the, the death instinct uh, being part of the body without organs, the uh, the way that it naturally sort of sluices between stuff and and disconnects and keeps new possibilities open up. Um, this closing of connections, the the elimination of them, that break in intensity, you might say, or or tension, uh, is is part and parcel of how desiring machines operate. This elevates them to a to this new regime and puts them in a very, very fucked up place. And that's the, the lines. Sorry, Jack, if you want to go back over it, just, um, please. I mean, this is how I understand this, this section. I I'm, and what I was, what I thought you were talking about. I was, I far off in your reference because that sounded like it was playing right into that. I think we're heading the same direction. Yeah. So I mean, that's the point of the paragraph, right? Is why is why is capital as a socius more repressive than the other two? The, the let's let's go through this because there's a couple of points that I think are made in here that I find really interesting, and I'd love to have a discussion around the interpretation of them. Um, uh, just just say it's a I'm second sentence on basically. Um, we know that Moeller's social production and molecular desiring production must be evaluated both from the viewpoint of their identity in nature and from the viewpoint of their difference in regime. This is the previous 
uh, series of paragraphs and actually the previous two sections. Uh, this is the, um, the destructive task as uh, moving into representation, understanding the two regimes, being able to identify and blah, blah, blah. But it could be that these two aspects, nature and regime, are in a sense potential and are actualized only in inverse proportion, which means that where the regimes are the closest, the identity in nature is on the contrary at its minimum, and where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. Um, the, there is a way, a phrasing here that I find really interesting. They kind of move on. I'll just read the next sentence. If we examine the primitive or the barbarian constellations, we see that the subjective essence of desire as production is referred to large objectities, to the territorial or despotic body, which acts as natural or divine preconditions that thus ensure the coding as the overcoding of flows of desire by introducing them into systems of representation that are themselves objective. Hence, you could say that the identity and nature between the two productions is completely hidden there as much as the difference between objective socius and subjective full body of desiring production, as by the difference between the qualified codes and overcoding of social production. Jesus Christ, this sentence is so long, I shouldn't have started this. Um, the, they're talking about how um, the representations seem like uh, they are, uh, they're more clear that they are separated from desire. That desire machines and the regimes are more crisply situated where the socius sits and where desire sits. The, the space between the two regimes is a lot more clear. And because of that, uh, we actually have an interesting thing where the, that distance in them gives us a place where um, the identity in nature appears at its maximum, that the way that desire seems to function actually mm, uh, syncs up maybe a wording uh, for this. Uh, because there is that clean separation. Counter to that, within capital, desire being what it is, essentially the the external limits, uh, this, this setup, suddenly desiring production at that point almost overlays coding and decoding and is right up abutted against it. These things are right next to each other. And so as such, actual desire production and actual thing that exists in representation could not be further apart. That's how I read these like four or 5,000 word sentences. Um, this, this way that these codes work, the way that the desiring production plays against what is happening up there is that is why the primitive codes and even despotic overcodings testify to a polyvocity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire. The parts of the desire machine function in the very workings of the social machine. The flows of desire enter and exit through codes that continue to, however, that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of social desiring apparatus. The desire still moves post-subject and gets out there, and things are still informed by it. It's not that it's good. Uh, it's not that it's like positive. This is not any of that bullshit. But instead, the desiring machines are connecting directly into the social machines that are in there and desires flowing into it. There's coding and decoding and all kinds of weird shit that goes on with it and malforming and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, the despot sucks and he does awful shit, but desiring machines almost, uh, there is a continual connection to it. We don't have that in capitalism. There, there's decoded flows and axiomatics that drive us. Axiomatics drive us, not this sort of continued setup. And this is where 
we start talking about their next bit where it says, uh, it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops grafting desiring machines onto social machines and implanting the social machine in desiring machines. Death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within. This is especially true of the system of cruelty, uh, where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanism of surplus value, as well as in the movement of the finite blocks of debt. But even in the system of despotic terror, where debt is infinite and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make of it a latent instinct, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law and an experience for the overcoded subjects at the same time as anti-production remains separate as the share own, owing to the overlord. There, the desire is still connected and flowing. It is being appropriated and utilized, but it's at least being fucking appropriated and utilized. That's how I read this. Please, critique, because it's, it's actually a really important section. If you have questions, now would be the time. This is a really important one. I saw you trying, talking, Jack. Come on. I'm just kind of, kind of thinking through it, but it's always weird to me when I see nature because they say in 1.1, right, we're not going to play the nature versus social game. Um, I suppose that has to be consistent here, right? So it's got to be, you know, the disjunction of the natural and the social versus the regimes um, for some sake of consistency. Because if the, if the question is why... Why are the other two soci different in terms of repression? Why are they less repressive in a manner of speaking um, than capital, right? The answer they give is the point about the ephemeral, right? The very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. So the way I'm reading it is like something happens at the disjunct and the the conjunct with capital that pushes deterritorialization and decoding into this regime. And in doing so, right, like the molecular um, is dealing with this in a very different way, just like the molar is gonna have to deal with it in a very different way than in previous soci. Because what I'm kind of getting out of this without getting into the nature and identity um, a bit too deeply is like the processes of so like in terms of the second synthesis, right, the coding and the the overcoding happening in the first two soci, even in the second where death takes on this transcendent um, conditioning uh, as like a despot signifier, right? Um, there's still a point in which the the body without organs, the decoding and deterritorialization there doesn't have the same risk um, as it does in capital, right? Because in capital, it's pretty much what's repressed. This seems to say to me that the body of that organs doesn't face the same repression. I think it's because the decoding and deterritorialization that the BWO does, um, it's, it's basically a little bit more harmonic, kind of like you're suggesting, Brutz, right? Like there's... Well, it's, it's, it's used. So in the primitive and the despotic, like the, the question they ask right before this, uh, just to pick out one of the sentences, um, because we're, if we're talking about desiring production itself as decoded and deterritorialized production, and then over here we have capitalism, 
which is decoded and deterritorialized. That's what it does. And it has axiomatics and statistics. So we have that. But why is capitalism so fucking way, like, infinitely more repressive than the things that we can look at and go, well, that the, under the despotic, they'd butcher a guy. Like, how is, how is capitalism more repressive than these other systems, uh, which nonetheless did not lack necessary repressive means? That's their question that they want to answer in this section. Why is capitalism more brutal and repressive than despotism? Uh, which uh, is a, it's a hell of a statement. And to them, it's the death instinct underneath all of this because the, the desiring machines and the BWO inside of a functioning, proper, productive setup uh, are constantly connecting and disconnecting. Disconnecting, which is the body without organs sluicing in, finding new connections, that's freedom. That's actually the ability to not be fixated. And so we're able to constantly find new shit and that's always, always going. But the, the problem is that normally uh, the, in the previous socii, um, our desiring machines would be basically directly connecting and the desire would be coded, recoded, decoded, set up in ways that were socially, uh, I don't wanna say imminent, but socially determined, but they'd be continually working in the same general process. And so it would be able to move on. The problem under capitalism is basically because desiring production is all the way at its external limit, it goes all the way. That decoding, even though it seems like, oh, desire is free and you're free to run, which is very much something that we, uh, I mean, that's a general lie that we're told anyway. Underneath it all, we have this other thing where the, the death instinct's still there. It, 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 but now it's kind of stretched out over everything. Now it's kind of in everything. And because we don't have specific places it operates, where it's like, oh, it does a disconnection and does this, even if it's a brutal version of it, like it would be in the primitive socii, um, those things, they do their best to break polyvocity as a thing. Um, but it, it, it testifies to it. So that is why the primitive codes and even despotic overcodings testify to a polyvocity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire. The parts of the desire machine function in the very workings of the social machine. Flows of desire enter and exit through codes that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of the socio-desiring apparatus, the social machine that they connect to, your family, your tribe, the social institutions, whatever, inside of the primitive, and then even the despotic, desire makes its way through and it's, and it's still being used. That doesn't happen in capitalism. That's their underlying essence here, that this doesn't happen under capitalism. And, and we'll get into that in the next, next paragraph, but it's the thing they're wanting to really drive home is that um, desire continued to be functioning and gets brought through in these other systems. These things still connect to desiring machine and desiring production. They code, they decode, they recode, they overcode. They do a lot of awful shit with it, but it's still, it, it's still operant within it. Desire still plays a role inside of it. That's, that's how I, it's, um, if, if you think of desire, desiring machine, desire is like an oil that's moving through desiring machines and you are this mass amount of it and it's all flowing up 
uh, and it moves out into other things, this abstracted thing. My desire exits me and goes into my, the society I live in. We live in a society, and desire moves out. Under the primitive, it is coded and decoded and recoded in various ways that they went over inside of the primitive chapter. Under the despot, the despot is ultimately where all of that desire flows through, but it still flows, disconnects, moves. It does awful shit. They're still brutal. Again, this is not a, a, a valorization of those systems, but that they still code and decode and work. But this doesn't happen in capital. We don't have that, that because desiring machine is all desiring is already there. It's already at the edge. Uh, it's already that setup. The, the, the line that they have, um, uh, um, sorry. Uh, death comes all the more from without, uh, especially true of a system of cruelty they go through. But even in the system of terror, where debt becomes infinite and death experiences an elevation that tends to make it latent instinct, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law and an experience for overcoded subjects at the same time as anti-production remains separate as the share owing to the overlord. Things are still produced emergently through desire, even in social functions. Representation hasn't taken over. This is the line that they draw between that and where capital comes in. This is, this is how I read all of that. Sorry for the long ramble. It's a really complex paragraph. Um, does that make sense, Jack? Mm -hmm. I mean, rep representation and repression are different in these soci, right? Because this is, I think, where the, the coding and that's coming into play is. So they write, if we examine the primitive or the barbarian constellations, we see that the subjective essence of desires production is referred to, bob the, to large objectities to the territorial or the despotic body, which act as natural or divine preconditions that thus ensure the coding or the overcoding of flows desired by introducing them into systems of representation that are themselves objective. Well, so right there, right? Like, there's an introduction to representation in that. But the I think the unique thing is that it's they're focusing on the objectivities of it, which I presume is just simply like the signified distinction as opposed to the figures that basically um, destroy all of this, right? This is the joke about capitalism being illiterate. Well, actually, so the representation's not, it's almost like the representation's not at, you know, war. Actually, I'm at an, war with itself, right? I, I think I'm taking something from you that you're not necessarily putting forward, but I think something you said really struck with me. There's, there's an underlying thing here that they're also talking about that death, um, death doesn't exist in the, in the primitive. I'm not, I now, I need to go back and reread the primitive, uh, 336 is the page we're on. Someone remember, remind me of that. Um, how does death work within the primitive? Well, this is where, like when they're talking about this instinct. I'm thinking they're talking about decoding and deterritorialization, just at like a, a shorthand. Because when they say, right, like they've just done this whole bit in the last two paragraphs about trying to explain the, you know, the imminent relation of death and life in desiring production, as opposed to the transcendent death 
um, that we're encountering with uh, these three soci. More, more particularly, I think capital um, gets the focus there. And in doing that, right, they're trying to get at a point at which, um, in both cases, right, that death is contextually contingent on the conditions of production, right? And as such, right, I think what they're trying to guard against is like a, uh, like the biodeterminism of psychoanalysis. No, I think you're right. I think so. So if we go back, um, the nature of the desiring production as it sits, they don't really use the term death. They, they refer to it early on as the death instinct, but death doesn't sit in the same way in the primitive as it does uh, when we move to the despotic and death moves from a thing that is something that happens socially to a constant threat from above. That's the play that moves death from being something that someone experiences, uh, which you would in the primitive, everyone dies, people die all the time, you kill, blah, 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 um, to uh, the despot or the state effectively has the ability to kill you at any time. Death becomes a thing that sits alongside. It's not instinctual here either. It's, it's a threat from above. The move with capital, and not that I just sort of also peaked a little bit ahead, but the move with capital is that um, alongside the despot, as um, the despot moves and kind of becomes one with currency and uh, all affiliative then moves, affiliative and alliant move through within that, the change for death then would also move within a generalized play with desiring production. And so it would become pervasive psychically rather than just an external threat as it was under the despot. Hmm. Yep, I think you're making me changing my idea. Yes. I mean, we're working through it. This is like you're seeing a complex page-long paragraph, right? Because um, one just of the read, things... Ash says, I just want to read, Ash said, uh, fear of death engraved into the body, body preserving itself with the urgency of its own self-perpetuated fear, doubling down as an axiomatic solution to its own perceived failures, not only in intensifying its behaviors, but also in its own perceived failures. I, I mean, we're about to get to that paragraph. That is not a bad sort of preview, I think, um, actually. Uh, go ahead, Jack. I just want to make sure we say the text because not everyone is cool with yelling at each other like we are. We have a special relationship. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're working through it in therapy. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, I mean, it does impact the body at some level, though, right? Because that's... Like focusing on the coding and the overcoding means we're focusing on signifiers and signifieds, right? To really shorthand those, the disjunct in those two socii. Yeah. Just see, like, I, what's weird to me is, like, kind of like what you were saying about the harmonizing, like, so they're doing this weird thing with, with nature and regime. Yeah, I don't care for it myself. I don't care for that myself at all. It's kind of confusing, right? But if we just, Take it for, you know, we'll just put aside the, the nature thing for a minute, which means that they're, they're regime, that we're the regimes are the closest since they're inverse. The identity in nature is on the contrary at its minimum. And when the, where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. And so then they go on to point out that these two regimes seem to be like really close to each other. Since mm -hmm. I'm thinking this means that they differ to the least degree, which would suggest then that the identity in nature is that it's 
minimum the identity as nature and regime are, are it's inverse so yeah the closer that they are in identity, the further apart in nature, the closer they are in nature, the further, or, sorry, the, I said that wrong. The closer they are in the regime, the further apart in nature uh, that they are. Uh, the closer they are in regime, the further apart in nature they are. I think it's the closer the regime, the identity, in nature, no, the, the identity at its minimum. At its minimum. So there's like symmetric, which fits with your point about harmonizing them. Yes. Because, and that seems to fit, right? So like the regimes of the molecular and molar okay. are so close together that their identity doesn't seem to be afflicting each other the way it would under capital, right? So, okay. So... Uh, if we let's presume that we're talking about uh, decentered subjectivity and a mass of desiring machines, um, and the way that they want us to talk about regimes is that there aren't two things. There's not two sides of a coin. It's not pre-subject or post-subject. Even though I've used those phrases in the past, and I will do my best to stop doing it, we're talking about kind of a um, uh, the cloud. We're talking about a cloud and what a cloud looks like versus being able to identify the raindrops. It doesn't mean that it's not a cloud. It doesn't mean that it doesn't look like a thing. Um, it's, it is a cloud. It still has raindrops. The ability for us at any point to talk about how a cloud functions or what the raindrops are or any part of it, it's about grabbing a uh, combination of looking at the whole in its parts. Oh, this is kind of that, isn't it? Where you're looking at the cloud. If you're looking at the cloud at large and you're able to sort of piece together all the different nuances and little dots in your eye that make up the cloud, uh, you're able to kind of see that they, generally speaking, are close in regime, and they function at that same point. Doesn't mean that they're broken; it's just that setup. Whereas at the base, you've got the lots of little pieces. You're talking about the the, the molecular at that point, lots of little droplets. At any point in this regime, if we take that cross section or that sort of 3D cross section of desiring machines, the closer they are in regime, and we because it's this big gradient the generalized identity and nature of them is going to be very much the same. And so it's, let's say there's desiring machines at the very base level that are purely just that, and I'm calling myself a subject. But the desiring machines that are functioning emergently are larger apparatuses of them. Uh, if I grab one of them uh, that are, uh, we'll say, further towards the molar regime, the homogeneity is going to be the same. The functionality is going to be the same within that cross-section at that scale. And that's kind of the axes that we're talking about here. This is fucking yeah, really I, tough. I think we're getting closer, though, because those two axes, they give us some help there. And it seems to be the objectities and the subjective essence of desire, right? Because this is, I think, part of the trick is like, and this is basically like the Ricardo point, right? With, same with Freud is the, the, the kind of that liberation of, of desire, that subjective um, liberation is one of the big changes with capital, right? In the same way that labor goes through that. Because they go on to say, right, um, this point about the subjective essence of desire is production is referred to large objectities to the territorial or despotic body, which acts as a natural or divine precondition, thus ensuring the coding or the overcoding of flows of desire. 
uh, introduce them to systems of representation that are themselves objective. So it's almost like they're saying, right, the subjective production is passing into coding, and that's all passing into representation. So the subjectivity of the production is passing into the representation of it um, as an object. Well, and this is why, and under this is why you need the theater of cruelty inside of um, yeah. the, uh, the the primitive. Uh, the the there is a desire machine that wants you to consume whatever you have immediately, for sure. Um, and you'll hear ANCAPs talk about this now. Well, what if I just fucking ate all the fish that I captured and I didn't give any to you? Um, this is. I mean, that's a very human thing. That's just a, that's an animal thing. That's a, I want that desiring machine thing. So in order to ensure that's not the case and make sure that these laws are followed, they don't have laws overarching. They fucking torture you and make sure that you know that's the case. They, they carve it into your body in the theater of cruelty. They have people watch it. They have these rituals. They have this setup. Um, and so as such, there's this really interesting thing I think that they're pointing out here that any part of that mass of desiring machines from base all the way to the, the socius, um, any selection of any part of that regime, you'll start to actually see these two aspects. And you can actually start to see that where the regimes are the closest, where, where um, the molecular and the molar, the social machines or the uh, desire machines, where they seem to be closest uh, to just, I want to get the words right. Um, um, the identity in nature then is on the contrary at its minimum. They have, they have a, a, the tiniest difference. And where identity appears at its maximum, the regimes differ. This setup of how we refer to desire machines versus social machines and where they start colliding um, and where they start overlapping. This is, I think, what they're referring to. Right. I Because I think what's happening then is like, to use the theater of cruelty, it's, and it's a similar principle for the theater of terror, right? Those mar The physical markings of the body represent the subjectivity of production, right? And in that way, the representation follows. So the subjectivity of... of um, of the two regimes, right, gets represented there. The implication I think they're making then is that with this coding, because in the primitive, it's basically just Lacan, right? It's just signifiers. Uh, I love the fact that Lacan's primitives. Anyways, um, the point I think they're suggesting then there is because of the, so they're so close in identity, like we were just saying, the deterritorialization of that representation or at least the deterritorialization of those flows um, is sort of, uh, it's, it's more possible, right? There's something more potential about it, I think. Because they're like hand in hand, well, that's a bit of a duplicitous way to say it, but they're closer together, right? Right here, as by the difference between qualified codes and overcodings of social production, and the chains of decoding or of deterritorialization belong in desiring production. And by the entire repressive apparatus represent the savage prohibitions, the barbarian law, and the rights of anti-production. 
So it almost comes off, right? Like these repressions are close to their own deterritorializations. It's kind of bizarre, right? But I think that's the suggestion. And it's, they have a line at the end here to just continue with the theater of cruelty where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanism of surplus value, as well as the movement of the finite blocks of debt, that mobile and finite blocks of debt that are part of that. Um, I want to read from Holland because it's a great sort of line off that. Well, it is true that savage myth supplements the reckoning of lineages so as to ground them in the earth itself. The system of alliances that constitute the network of debt obligations is subject to constant renegotiation and thus never forms a closed system. A, quote, a kinship system is not a fixed structure, but a practice, praxis, method, and even strategy. Losing Guattari conclude, it only appears closed to the extent that it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open. That phrasing there about how death plays in here, it's inscribed in this primitive mechanism of surplus value as well as the movement of finite blocks of death. Because of this, in, as they describe it, death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within, is especially true here. And then to end, but even in the system of despotic terror where debt becomes infinite, as it does through the despot, and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make it a latent instinct, a thing that you're aware of, but latently, not uh, the death instinct that we're familiar with through Freud, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law and an experience for the overcoded subjects at the same time as anti-production remains separate as the share owing to the overlord. This, again, we're talking about this separation in regime. Um, in, under the primitive, perhaps, it's very close. It's still extremely close, but a little bit further apart, perhaps, in the despot. And then we move to capital next, where things are not very close at all. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. That was a good discussion. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, we're, uh, we're getting there. <laughs> This I mean, it's such an easy text. We should just, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Why even bother? Um, Ash, I'll go back to your original question. Um, is this related to the role that the fear of death or dissolving of the ego plays in how we perceive the world and the perceptions by which we reserve determine our actions, behaviors, in relation to maintaining familiar systems and belief which reinforce that primordial fear to the point of justifying seemingly contradictory actions and behaviors? Um, that is uh, uh, the original, well, an interpretation of the death instinct of Thanatos uh, as an energy, I believe, yes. Um, it's not really what we're talking about. They're, they're talking about that, and they're going to make a move that shifts that, I think, a bit. But we're kind of talking about that stuff, yes. Then they write, the difference in regime, far from being... Far from being accentuated and condemned, on the contrary, reduced to a minimum because desiring production as an absolute limit remains an exterior limit, or else stays unoccupied as an internalized and displaced limit, with the result, and I guess this is the trick, that the machines of desire operate on this side of their limit within the framework of the socius and its codes. Okay, so the deterritorializing and decoding works within the framework of the socius. I think so. I think that's the yes. simple translation of that, right? Yes. 
parts of the desire machine function and the very workings of the social machine, the flows of I think this made sense because the displacement different, right? There's even less a question of the death instinct. This is where it gets interesting, right? And it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops drafting the desired machines on the social machine and implanting the social machine in the desired machines. So this would be where the repression is coming into play, I think. Yes, again, um, like all of, them together. Well, well, to go back to, I mean, we were talking about Bataille earlier, to go back to their underlying thing of what makes these socii, it's about how anti-production and production function to build the social order of things. And so, uh, when we're talking about anti-production as a thing, the, the, what stops production or the, the, the nature of what anti-production is, um, it's in the, in the, uh, <sighs> inside of savagery and the primitive, uh, ultimately it's operated by kinship relations. It's a very difficult thing. It's not directly just family. It's also the alliant and the sort of larger social sphere. And as we just talked about death and the things within that, everything that is threatened, the theater of cruelty is so enmeshed and married very closely to the desiring machines that it keeps them in this. I've, I'm going to go hard that I think we're right here, that the, the nature of those desiring machines and then the social machines, the inscriptions on the body quite literally overlap so tightly that they become almost one and the same, that the way that they function, their, their nature. I really don't like that they use that term here, but uh, fine. Their nature and identity become so similar. They're similar in regime as well. Um, with the move towards the... Um, uh, because again, it's about where anti-production sits in this is ultimately what determines these things. So under the despotis, despot, um, anti-production is ultimately about that hyper-political domination from on high. Uh, the godhead, the pharaoh, the uh, whatever it may be, the monarch, and death is elevated rather than just being something that sort of is, uh, I don't want to say internalized. Well, internalized is probably the right term. It's something that's internalized through experience. It now is something that is sort of lauded and controlled over. You don't get to determine the day of your death. You are sent to die. You are killed. You are put to death. Your, your life and everything that you have is ultimately at control. The death is... The disconnection the, that is controlled by the despot that is further away from you, but still it is connected to general apparatus desiring machines of coding and decoding and overcoding specifically. I think in the despot. Yeah, I think I think now I I think I'm going to go with that's what they're talking about, because ultimately yeah. it's about that line. Death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jack. Yeah, it, it's starting to click for me too because I just remember where they wrote that line, right? Where um, uh, they basically say the greatest nightmare of the first of, of the soci, right, is the decoded flows, and that's what capital unleashes, right? And I think that's especially the line you just read. I think that's what they're getting at here is the if we take kind of like I'm doing, I'm, I'm probably cheating a little bit, but if we just take death in terms of deterritorialization and decoding, right? 
it seems to be saying that that subjectivity of it all is pushed to the objective the objectivities um, mitigating I think a lot of the deterritorialization risk and when it does happen there's a way of like in a sense it's almost the circuitry right there's almost like a reintegration because it seems like what they're saying right is like I guess this is why they're focusing on the finite plots of that. It seems like they're saying once that's deterritorialized and all that, that's okay because the molar, um, more so the socius, right, will be able to overcode it or, or you know, recode it. Um, if we're right, as so far as we're talking about the despotic, but that's the that's I think the trick, right? Though, is in doing that, they're able to. It's a different way of repressing the de the, the decoding deterritorialized flows, right? Well, it's 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 why death exists. So I, I went back a little bit um, uh, to uh, chapter two. Um, there's a line here they have um, when they're talking about the move of death inside of the despot. There occurs a detachment and elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions. Um, Hey, in the savage times, people died. They killed each other. They did shit, but it's it's a reactive, uh, active, uh, back and forth. It happens based on shit you do. It is directly very much connected to sort of that imminent experience. The coding happens for sure, but it's it's something that is just uh, coded within that interplay. In order to become the somber agent of overcoding, the detached object that hovers over each subject, that play of how death moves from being this accident or a thing that just happens now is on top inflicted by the state inflicted by the monarch it is controlled by him and his system of law that is beyond nebulance and because of that this natural obedience to that under threat of death which kind of sits there this is the move that they're making where suddenly it's gone from being a uh hey, uh, death happens. So like the death instinct, which I think they, they're using more uh, callously and sarcastically here. It's just a thing. Like death is normal. It's everywhere. Under the despot, it's really everywhere, but it's pressured from on high. And now it's something that you have to consider with every move. Am I going to be killed if I do X? If I have a Y? It plays almost a little bit more like how Oedipus plays during this time and actually how Oedipus continues. It, it becomes something that in inserts and you become aware of and you have to be thinking through all that you're doing the move within capital is uh not having it on high but because desire production extends and becomes the external limit death is now within every machine gross is that right we're going to read the next paragraph shortly i'm pretty sure i'm right on that and that means death is then the death instinct as we know it now as a contingent thing based on social relations and how desire and production works. Um, I know, you know what? I'm going to say this is, that's my interpretation of this paragraph. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go with that for now. I'm going to go with that for now. That sounds, yeah. Thank you, Jen Claire. That sounds right. And it sounds better than what I was saying before. It sounds uh, a lot more interesting, actually. Why was I doing a transcendent thing before? I mean, it's, you know, we're it's Tuesday. It's because it's Tuesday. Tuesday. I hate Tuesday more than Monday, so I, I share in that. Yeah. But I mean, this is kind of the thing, right? Is they like we'll go kind of jumping back a little bit, but just to make the point, right? The point is that they're tying the BWO and the death instinct to a zero intensity, right? 
And I think that's kind of important here just to point out, especially because we're at the disjunct and the conjunct, right? They control the uncon... Well, these intense becomings and feelings, these intensive emotions feed deliriums and hallucinations. But in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in itself. They control the unconscious experience of death, insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling. What never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming, in the becoming another sex. They go on to say, every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. So at this point, right, like the surplus value being extracted is obviously very tied to death in this chapter. Uh, finally, they go on to say, Maurice Blanchot, this is the part everybody loves, Maurice Blanchot distinguishes this twofold nature clearly, these two irreducible aspects of death, the one according to which the apparent subject never ceases to live and travel as of one, quote, one never stops and never has done with dying, end quote, and the other according to which the same subject, fits as I, actually dies, which is to say it finally ceases to die, since it ends up dying in the reality of a last instant that fits as it in this way as an I, with all the, undo all the while undoing the intensity, carrying it back to the zero that envelops it. So that point about the zero more so I think is critical because that's where I think we're getting these points about the bodies, the body without organs and associates here. That I think is what's under the repression here. And it's a question of how those becomings perpetuate. And I think a question on the other side of that, um, I mean, basically how they die, right? But that I think is what's, I think that's the matter of the repression, right? Well, it's, 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 I mean, we're about to get to why capitalism is so brutally repressive, but the, basically they're here saying, um, sort of technically, uh, the, there isn't really repression happening under the savage or the, the primitive, not, not like that, not repression. Not there's the same way, right? Correct. There, there's for sure people like there's the theater of cruelty, which immediately shapes and morphs your desires in a horrifying way for sure sucks no fan but it's not really repression it is forcing your desiring machines in line with the social machines needs like that's really what the theater of cruelty does is it makes you do those things and and know those and code that um the same they're almost saying of the despot that it's not repression either it is oppression but not repression. There's a difference, and I think a significant one, because it's deeply oppressive to have someone go, uh, there's a law tomorrow, you're not allowed to hunt in the king's forest or under threat of death. That is oppressive, uh, but it's not repressive. You're not like holding back like or lying to yourself about the desire or repressing the desire to go hunt or to fuck someone or to do that. Like You still have those desires. You just outright think, well, I can't fucking do that. This guy's going to goddamn kill me. I'm not going to do that. It's illegal. It's like, oh, shit. And then there's the next step, which is the actual repression, which is not having the desires at all or having them repressed and malformed under uh, paralogisms. Um, hey, it's a capitalism. I think it's time to move to the next paragraph. Um, 
It's we're moving to the next paragraph now. I don't think we can do it without it. So hurry up to give, give a final point there. I think it's a difference in eternal returns because the, the picture I'm getting of these two soci is they're basically, so if death is tied to the becomings, right. Uh, in the two ways we saw, and that fills out into the surplus that's to be extracted, right? It looks like the point is that as production subjectively happens, that's pushed into the objectities, right? And that's pushed into repression. And that's, I think, the circuitry there is that that's how the two soci deal with the risk of deterritorialized and decoded flows, right? Through territorialization and through overcoding, which in that way, mitigates a lot of that but it stays kind of close to them and in that way i think that's part of the trick is it's able to very closely deal with those problems of um, molecular becomings uh without without what we're about to see next right because i think the last bit of this is that it also suggests to me that the, the two theaters perhaps allow for that next step of deterritorialization by anticipating the ter the re-territorialization, the recoding of them, because those two soci aren't dealing with them, you know, they're not decoding and deterritorializing molar flows. They're dealing instead uh, with the molecular through the molar very closely. That's kind of where I've landed on it. Time to move to capital. Anyone else have questions or comments before we move forward? Please, now would be the time because this is the foundational critique and we're about to move and talk about why capitalism is more repressive than the monarchy system or the brutal system of the theater of cruelty within the primitive. And if you don't understand why those things are not necessarily re repressive, at this point, we're happy to answer, but we need a question or two specifically to be able to help you get there. I'm also Same happy to just keep going. Oppressive. <laughs> uh, no, just repressive. I think oppressive would be the way to talk about, because again, we're talking about um, the overt threat of power and the overt usage of political power within the um, space of the uh, despot. I, I'm hesitant to say it's repressive in the same way, or repressive would be even the proper term. Like, it's, it's laws that oppress. I think it's, it's repression in three different flavors, two of which are less severe than capital, right? Yeah, sure. I, I just, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a me being stickler with words. Um, I just don't see repressive. Um, being a thing in the same, well, yeah, there's some level of it, but capitalism is par excellent. Like it's wild, um, how much worse. I think that's actually what they're saying too, that's the line. Um, once we've said that desiring production is itself a decoded and deterritorialized production, how do we explain it? Capitalism, with its axiomatic statistics, performs an infinitely vaster repression of this production than do preceding regimes, which nonetheless did not lack necessary repressive means. Um, it's infinitely vaster. So it's, uh, it's I, I would say it's almost categorically different, but yeah, I get it. Fair, fair point. 
I'm going to go ahead and go to the next paragraph then, because it's time for capitalism. <sighs> Things are very different in capitalism. Precisely because the flows of capital are decoded and deterritorialized flows, precisely because the subjective essence of production is revealed in capitalism, precisely because the limit becomes internal to capitalism, which continually reproduces it, and also continually occupies it as an internalized and displaced limit. Precisely for these reasons, the identity and nature must appear for itself between social production and desiring production. But, in its turn, in this identity and nature, far from favoring an affinity and regime between the two modes of production, increases the difference in regime in a catastrophic fashion, and assembles an apparatus of repression the mere idea of which neither savagery nor barbarism could provide us. This is because, on the basis of a general collapse of the large objectities, the decoded and deterritorialized flows of capitalism are not recaptured or co-opted, but directly apprehended into a codeless axiomatic that consigns them to the universe of subjective representation. Now, this universe has, as its function, the splitting of the subjective essence, the identity in nature, into two functions. That, the, that of the abstract labor alienated in private property that reproduces the ever-wider interior limits, and that of abstract desire, alienated in the privatized family that displaces the ever-narrower internalized limits. The double alienation, labor-desire, is constantly increasing and deepening the difference in regime at the heart of the identity and nature. At the same time that death is decoded, it loses its relationship with a model and an experience, and becomes an instinct, that is, it effuses in the imminent system where each act of production is inextricably linked to the process of anti-production as capital. There, where the codes are undone, the death instinct lays hold of the repressive apparatus and begins to direct the circulation of the libido, a mortuary axiomatic. One might then believe in liberated desires, but ones that, like cadavers, feed on images. Death is not desired, but what is desired is dead, already dead, images. Everything labors in death, everything wishes for death. In truth, capitalism has nothing to co-opt, or rather, its powers of co-option coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted, and even anticipate it. How many revolutionary groups as such are already in place for a co-option that will be carried out only in the future and form an apparatus for the absorption of a surplus value not even produced yet, which gives them precisely an apparent revolutionary position? In a world such as this, there is no living desire that could not of itself cause the system to explode, or that would not make the system dissolve at one end where everything would end up following behind and being swallowed up. A question of regime. Let's go sentences, a couple sentences at a time. Uh, there's actually some very crisp language in here, I think, unlike the previous, um, to me at least. Uh, please let me know if I'm once again off. off. Uh, that last discussion was wonderful. Um, precisely because the flows of capital are decoded and deterritorialized flows, precisely because the subjective essence of production is revealed in capitalism, 
precisely because the limit becomes internal to capitalism, which reproduces it and also continually occupies it as an internally and displaced limit. The capital flows of capital are always decoded and deterritorialized. There's this, this nature to these flows because ultimately at the same time we have a limit that is internal to capitalism. There's the nature of capitalism as it sits within all of these things. For all of these reasons, this identity in nature must appear for itself between social production and desiring production. Uh, uh, you, subject, the subject. I mean, this is, a, this is a play on how the ego works within capital and how subjectivity is produced within capitalism. Um, it sits between the two, the two sides, the two regimes. It sits in the middle. And in its turn, this identity in nature, far from favoring an affinity in regime between the two modes, increases the difference in regime in catastrophic fashion and assembles an apparatus of repression that barbarism and savagery just wishes they could fucking have, basically. Um, again, uh, we'll get there, but it's uh, subjectivity. Um, on the basis of the general collapse of the large objectities, Decoded and deterritorialized flows of capitalism are not recaptured, but directly apprehended in a codeless axiomatic that consigns them to the universe of subjective representation. This is underneath of everything kind of in this book. This is to me their critique and the thing that they're trying to get us to understand. They utilize Oedipus as this thing. It's to make us understand how representation operates and plays with desire and creates repression. It's not simply... Um, I want thing or thing X, I don't have, therefore I want it, or any other such thing. It's the nature of representation and how these axiomatics, uh, the axiomatics of representation are able to capture and hold desire and fuck us up from it. And ultimately, within this hyper-alienated sphere we live in, everything is about death, but it's not just death in the... Uh, pure repetition sense, I think. It's death in the uh, way that images are repetition. The image of the thing, the memory of the thing, the goal of the thing, the nature of nostalgia, the, the, the desire for X, Y, or Z is the nature of capitalism. We don't desire, um, uh, desire doesn't operate. We desire things, we desire images, we desire death. And it's because in these moments, that we have labor desire spread apart and broken as it is at this moment, death also becomes decoded. And in, as it decoded, it loses its relationship with a model and an experience. Um, the real thing, the actual reality of death is gone from us. It's no longer, Oh, uh, Steve died when we went on a hunt or the King murdered my wife because she spoke out against him. That's, the model and experience of death. Instead, now it's it's an instinct, and it's 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 an instinct psychically. It's an instinct within this imminent system where each act of production is inextricably linked to a process of anti-production as capital. The air where the codes are undone, the death instinct lays hold of the repressive apparatus and begins to direct the circulation of the libido. One might then believe in liberated desires, but ones that like cadavers, feed on images. Death itself is not desired. We don't sit here craving death. The death instinct isn't about us pushing for death. No, no, no. We crave the thing that is dead. We crave images. 
everything then labors and wishes for death. In truth, capitalism has nothing to co-opt, or rather its powers of co-option coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted or even anticipated. This last phrase is brutal. Um, um, and then they have here basically shitting on revolutionary groups. It, apply this to anyone currently on the <laughs> left, uh, online left especially, um, that it, it's naturally just waiting. Capitalism doesn't co-opt. Capitalism doesn't do anything. That's not how it works. It's a, it's a systemic order of production. Its powers of co-option coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted and even anticipated. It's this really weird thing as things become images, as things become representation, they're waiting and they are waiting to become the Che Guevara t-shirt at the Gap. It's waiting. All of this shit is. Um, they're waiting for you to do a podcast and sell your stupid bullshit t-shirts to people because you get to be revolutionary. Sure. Um, don't, don't, don't be hated on my Gap t-shirt, man. I just, uh, I just, gotta, it's, I just Buy whatever you do. But, but the underlying thing here is, is that this isn't that capitalism ruins things. Like that's, there's a line here that I love. Capitalism has nothing to co-opt in our social production because death is, is part of our, our desire. We desire the dead. We desire the images. We desire the repetition. We desire, and this is where the sort of traditional death instinct sort of peeks back in, the idea of the nostalgia, the drive towards the same, the same, the same, the same, the same, which is towards the, at least my understanding of Freud's version of it, and, and, and uh, Lacan's too. Um, everything ultimately wishes for death. It's not death and dying. We don't have those models anymore. Instead, it is the image. It is the, the thing that is dead. And because things are dead as images, images are everywhere, images are part and parcel of how the axiomatic and the world of representation sort of plays, it's... Everything becomes that, and therefore everything's just waiting to be co-opted. Like, it's almost as if capitalism is anticipating it. In a world like this, there is no living desire, living desire being the operant word here. We have dead desires. I want, um, uh, I, I, I would, I'd love a really good Batman movie, um, the 90th time, uh, just as an example, like, that's a, I want an image of these things that I know that are out there. I don't want new because you can't want something that's not an image in our society. It has to exist. And therefore the images are dead and the cycle continues. There's no living desire, living emergent, actually connected to the base level design machines that could not itself of itself cause the system to explode or not make the system dissolve at one end where everything would end up following behind and being swallowed up. They, uh, they've made this line a few times. A true desire would destroy society. And this is why. Because you all want things. I want things. Sure, we all desire stuff. We desire images. We are unable to allow truly lived experience desires to become emergent because of the nature of the alienation and the way anti-production is made within the society and death has become internal. Um, all right, uh, Scofies. Okay, uh, death becoming decoded. That's actually a really great, where do we go into that? Where would be a good place to go into that? 
I'm trying to find the line because uh, I I know the line we say here. Um, um, uh, the double alienation labor desire is constantly increasing and deepening the difference in regime at the heart of the identity of nature. At the same time that death is decoded, it loses its relationship with a model and an experience. That sounds oddly platonic, and becomes an instinct. That is, uh, it decoding. Just to mention, system. the 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 line there that matters real quick is is decoding, and decoding is the moment of axiomatization, as they've as they've described it. it it's desire freed from codification overall. And so there's, uh, there's a nature of everything kind of moving into that space where it, it becomes decoded. It becomes axiomatized. Uh, it becomes uh, uh, basically a word. It becomes representational. And the actual desire that was building into it. Uh, the death is a thing. Like, so is desire. These are... These are um, representationally they exist, but they're also lived experiences. Someone might die tomorrow. Death is a thing that actually happens to us, happens to people around us. We have a weird relationship with it now, though. It's not something that kind of is a thing we really have as a lived experience. We now deal with things in this weird space of being a representation of playing on the other side of axiomatization. And so when something, when death moves from being as it is in the, uh, the, Savage times, the, the the whatever we want to call it, during the first socius, um, it is a, an emergently lived thing that happens. We, we use the word for it, but it's not death as a deterministic category or a, a, a representational. It's it's an it's a thing that happens. Uh, at some point, death moves to being a political power play, sits alongside the despot, and anyone can suffer from it. These are lived experiences of death. They are emergent in the same way that uh, at some point you become 36 years old. Like it's just, there's a 36 year old lived experience and, or not. Maybe you die before then, uh, which is my point. When we move to capital, these things are no longer the emergent lived experience. They're now representational. They're now image based. This is what they mean by image. This is what they mean by axiomatic. I don't, I no longer care or, or, uh, the lived experience of death is no longer the thing I think of. Instead, I think of the image of that. I think of the word of that. I'm I'm divorced from lived experience because these things have been axiomatized and decoded. And so death is included in that. Fucking is included in that. Penis, vagina, hair, body, sex, attraction, uh, books, all of these things are lived experiences that like people can come across without having images, but we do, we have images of all of them. And as such, the desire that produced them, because you have to remember there's an underlying energy to everything that makes these emergent properties, that underlying thing that produces them, we deflate and we turn it into an image. An image is dead. An image doesn't have desire flowing through it. It's no longer connected. The distance between the regimes becomes fucking massive because now I, as a subject, sit in there and I get to pretend, oh yeah, no, there's desire over here that produces things, that's great. And then, oh my God, look at that hot woman over there. 
Now, Hot Woman is produced by images and sort of woven into the generalized axiomatic of the social institutions I'm in. The desiring machines sure play into that, but it's no longer emergently that my desiring machines and my contingent experience of life are determining what I find attractive, but the images that have been laid out in front of me are. I live by images, and images have no desire within them. They are photographs. The photos you have of your entire family or pictures that you've printed out, there's no energy in them. They are paper. It is ink on paper. But the moment that that photo was taken, those people had energy and vitality and beauty within them. This is the moment of decoding when the photograph is taken. But we do this on a representational basis with everything. And so death is included in this. The idea of death becomes an image, becomes a thought to us that we think of axiomatically rather than the lived experience that is emergent. So everything becomes decoded like this in capital. We do not have lived experiences in the same way that we did prior. Um, the, the way to think through all of this is desire is the thing that matters. We don't have that really. Like we have desire being deeply repressed. It's pushing up. It's trying its best to get out there. Desire's going, but it's like that base layer. And then slowly we've got the five paralogisms where we've had images come at us like Oedipus that have twisted and fucked up desire, repressed it, created anti-production, uh, all kinds of awful things, made neurotics and fascists and paranoiacs and all kinds of shit. Because again, we are produced, but at some point, the desire sort of doesn't connect anymore with images. The images are dead. They don't have anything. There's no vitality there in the same way there is through a lived experience. And we don't have that. And that includes death. Death, ha death is a vitalistic experience. Um, I mean, it's not for us, but death is a vitalistic, real, lived moment and thing for people. Um, ask anyone who's known someone who's died violently. It is... Absolutely that. We have images instead of it. And so because of that, it moves, thanks to capitalism, it's decoded. And this moment, this play that happens here changes everything. And now we have these massive limits. We have these things. It's the model and experience have been disconnected. And instead, death moves to the place of being an instinct. It effuses in the imminent system where each act of production is inextricably linked to the, pro pro the process of anti-production as capital. And anti-production is the core of how capitalism sort of begins to uh, function and move us around. Um, they quote uh, Holland again, in capitalist society, the forces of anti-production operate through the market. The relations of anti-production are economic rather than personal. As in despotism, debt is infinite, so filiation still predominates over alliance, but it's ground. The socius is no longer a figure. It is capital, industrial, financial capital. Uh, and the market is what determines it. But the market is far more terrifying than any despot is. Um, feel free to tell me that you have absolute certainty that three weeks from now we won't all be killed. Um, uh, killed is the wrong word. Uh, tell me you aren't going to lose your job and everything you own because the market determined so. There, that's the end of the sentence. Um, uh, the market is an awful, awful thing that kind of just 
deals death randomly and it's, it's unknowable. We can't know what's coming at us. And so it's, it moves because of how it functions. It, it changes how death interacts with us. It's now everywhere. And as capital is produced, death is alongside it because it's, it's instinctual to us now. That's how I read that, at least. Jack, I see a hmm. Oh, that was in reference to Jan and Claire's question. Oh, so Jan, what happens to desire when it's not connected to anything real? I mean, you know because you live it. We all live in capitalism. It's desires connected to real things. Like it's still going. It's it's we don't have broken base floor of desiring machines. Desiring machines are literally doing whatever they're doing. It, if there is a transcendental thing, it is that desiring machines are sort of that base layer. It's where things start. And so as partial objects disconnect, connect, all kinds of stuff's produced, that happens. At some point, the emergent behaviors of these things become complex. And when these become complex, they kind of breed us. And when we get together, things become complex, we get associates. There you go, happy day. That's kind of emergently how society exists. As we move through time, when we get to capitalism, desire's still going. Like we still live within it and that's, uh, they're going to be getting into that very fast here. Desire is ultimately still producing, but we don't want things that are filled with vitality. We don't want true desires. We want dead ones. We want the images. And this is, um, oh God, we have two paragraphs. I kind of want to burn through the next paragraph because I think it's time. And then I think. I think we go a little bit over and get through this section today. That's going to be my vote. Is anyone against that? All right. That's what we're doing. Eh, I'm not crazy about it. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's either that or we kind of, you know what? Maybe we'll do the next paragraph and next week we're going to do a recap recapitulation of this anyway. I think we have to because it's, it's a worthwhile discussion. So regardless, um, let's get through the next paragraph because I think it's, it's, it's answering a lot of this and conversations here. So let me do that. Um, so it's almost directly in response to John Claire's question, what happens to desire when it's not connected? Here are the desiring machines with their three parts, the working parts, the immobile motor, the adjacent part, their three forms of energy, libido, Newman, and voluptus. And there are three syntheses, the connective syntheses of the partial objects and flows, the disjunctive syntheses of singularities and chains, and the conjunctive syntheses of intensities and becomings. The schizoanalyst is not an interpreter, even less a theater director. He is a mechanic, a micro-mechanic. There are no excavations to be undertaken, no archaeology, no statues in the unconscious. There are only stones to be sucked, a la Beckett, and other machinic elements belonging to deterritorialized constellations. The task of schizoanalysis is that of learning what a subject's desiring machines are, how they work, with what syntheses, what bursts of energy in the machine, what constituent misfires, with what flows, what chains, and what becomings in each case. Moreover, this positive task cannot be separated from indispensable destructions. The destruction of the molar aggregates, the, the structures and representations that prevent the machine from functioning. It is not easy to rediscover the molecules, even the giant molecule. 
their paths, their zones of presence, and their own syntheses amid the large accumulations that fill the preconscious and that delegate their representatives in the unconscious itself, thereby immobilizing the machines, silencing them, trapping them, sabotaging them, cornering them, holding them fast in the unconscious. It is not the lines of pressure that matter, but on the contrary, the lines of escape. The unconscious does not apply pressure to consciousness. Rather, consciousness applies pressure and straitjackets the unconscious to prevent its escape. As to the unconscious, it is like the platonic opposite, whose opposite draws near. It flees or it perishes. What we have tried to show from the outset is how the unconscious productions and formations were not merely repelled by an agency of psychic repression that would enter into compromises with them, but actually covered over by anti-formations that disfigure the unconscious itself and impose on it causations, comprehensions, and expressions that no longer have anything to do with its real functioning. Thus, all the statues, the Oedipal images, the phantasmal mise-en-scene, the symbolic of castration, the effusion of the death instinct, the perverse re-territorializations. So that one can never, as in an interpretation, read the repressed through and in the repression, since the latter is constantly inducing a false image of the thing it represses. Illegitimate and transcendent uses of the syntheses according to which the unconscious can no longer operate in accordance with its own constituent machines, but merely represent what a repressive apparatus gives it to represent. It is the very form of interpretation that shows itself to be incapable of attaining the unconscious, since it gives rise to the inevitable illusions, including the structure and the signifier, by means of which the conscious makes of the unconscious an image resonant with its wishes. We are still pious, Psychoanalysis remains in the pre-critical age. I love, I love it, I love it. Um, almost to directly answer John Claire again, the the answer is that desire is still producing. Desiring machines are still producing. They're still doing the things. None of this changes things. But we need to understand from the position of the anal an, an analyst, uh, or or maybe even the position of ourselves, that it isn't about uh, trying to find the images that the person is wanting to evoke for us, or having those conversations. Uh, the first negative task, a destructive task, is to destroy these images as much as possible. The, the reason being that they not only prevent the machine from functioning, but they're kind of like the patient that doesn't know they're lying to you. They, they see what they see. They have the conversation they have because the images mean what they mean to them. They're representations of what they believe their desire to be, but they are not. They are the images proffered to you. They're covered over it. And instead, the, the reality of getting back to what is the machinic nature of the entire thing? How is it set up? This is the task. It's getting, first, destroy the representational as much as possible. Second, identify the positive task. Identify the machines that are actually working because they're built. Uh, machines, uh, 
uh, apparatuses, uh, assemblages, uh, whatever you may want to call it, that have been built over the course of this lived experience for this organism. Find them. Uh, they exist. They're real. And they're, they're there waiting for you. They just aren't made of images. They're not, oh, it's your father. Uh, no. What? No, that's image. No. Oh, it's Spider-Man. Nope. Nope. Image. Image. Uh, let's uh, go deeper. It's uh, the machines, the organs the way that they connect, what they produce, how they operate, that is the positive task, which can't be separated from the destructive, but this is the, f the, <clears throat> the goal. Because ultimately, we need to find these machines um, in order to be able to begin fixing or having the conversation of actually helping someone remove the repression that is destroying them. Um, I do want to read the last paragraph. I, I, this is a pretty crisp paragraph as far as it goes. I'm open if anyone wants to analyze. Um, but I don't even know if it's necessary. What, what questions would you have in here? Ken, did you just ask if they talk about desiring repression? That's literally the whole book. My friend, come on. Are you, you're, are you just being... Are you, are you being mean to me because you never come in here and you're just ha-ha-ha? No, I'm not being a troll. I just, I don't know that much. Because um, if they do, then, then these images do have an effect on desire, right? And, and structure oh, yeah. does have, have an effect on desire. Oh, yes. All of it affects desire. It's not, desire is not immune to it. It's just a matter of uh, figuring out the machines, how they work, where images come in. It's, I mean, literally the whole point of the book that they even, they even exclaim is to answer Reich's question, why do men desire their own repression? Um, as they quote directly. And to them, the answer is, oh, uh, because within capitalism, uh, the nature of how we have moved uh, as a social order is instead of connecting uh, we'll say lived experience to the punishments of things instead death and representation become center stage and they modify they trap they hold over desire but they're dead there is no productive thing happening within an image or within uh, anything at that space instead uh, these things are manufactured sure they're still just images um, social production is what makes them social production and axiomatics there's no desire there. It's ultimately powered by it at the base because it has to be, otherwise there'd be no movement at all. But desire itself, uh, it's the complex sort of meta machines that it slowly starts building, gets subsumed. And the way desire plays with images, uh, which they go over in, I want to say, almost all of chapter two, the five paralogisms, is how desire gets manipulated by images and ultimately uh, is changed. And yes, you did hear giant molecule, um, uh, right, correct. But I mean, that is the rub, right? Um, how do you, how do what? you get, how, how do you uh, either get out of capital or change the way capital works? Because, um, I mean, it seems straightforward, right? Um, if there are images or axiomatics 
that fundamentally serve capital in whatever status quo state it's in. Um, but if you try to disavow these things, you uh, lose out on being a part of, you know, the quote-unquote culture, right? And this is castration. Well, I mean, but, but, but you can't disavow those things. I don't believe that they, okay. I, you can just, you can just disavow image. This is the nature of how subjectivity is produced. I, in, under capitalism, I don't, I don't know if you can disavow that. Okay. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, it, it's, I mean, this is the big question is what do we do next? For sure. They're, they're not quite there. I think in this, this is more them saying, um, when you get, uh, they're talking primarily, I mean, it's Guattari, they're talking primarily about the analyst-analyst-and uh, relationship here, where it's, you have someone come in, they're neurotic, they've got problems. Do you sit there and talk to them about all the representations as they're built up? No, because images ultimately are dead. Their images are useful, you, they, they kind of lead you in directions, but the images aren't the things, the images don't produce. Instead, you need to find the machines that link to those images and sort of fund those images with desire to bring them to life seemingly. So that way you're able to get it where the actual problems are within the neurotic, paranoiac, whatever. So that's specifically the phrasing they're using here. I think you could take a step here. I don't think it's a wild idea to do the same thing and say that you can even do this uh, to help defeat the fascist within uh, and understand where your images are at and what is an image versus what is actually productive and what is actually truly lived experience versus uh, the dead that sits there. But they're moving towards um, ultimately finding ways to sort of unrepress the molecular. I have a, diff I have a, I mean, I don't want to get into my answer for you because I have an opinion about what I think their version of the change would be. But I don't think it's just, hey, we just get rid of images or you just uh, find a way to like be Neo in the matrix and get rid of them. It's much more than that because I mean, all of society is organized this way and we need each other to survive. So how do we do that? How do we have social constructions and images that don't immediately repress us? Can images be reproductive? Does that make no. sense? No? Okay. Because it, it seems like some things reproduce whatever structure. Like... like uh, like triangles making more triangles. Um, but I don't know if that, yeah, from what you're telling me, that doesn't make sense. Um, I, I want to be hesitant when we talk about uh, uh, images producing images. So the the idea of images replicating, sure, images get reprinted. Like I I've been on a computer. We've all seen JPEGs a billion times memes get reproduced on a billion machines. So sure there's, there's replication when we're talking about like production in this case, though, we are talking about the production through desire and desiring machines, the actually fully produced replicated, uh, uh, clawed at played at and having us, you know, do things over and over. Well, uh, would we say that, um, uh, my joke earlier, the new Batman movie, it didn't need to be Batman at all. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever for it to be Batman, except that it makes money and we're used to those images. People wanted more Batman. Is, is that reproducing Batman? And is that then Batman reproducing Batman? Or is that 
the underlying desire of people reproducing these images and this is the end result and again is dead there is no living desire uh libidinal energy inside of it like the the movie didn't make another movie the images don't make other images the system may be built i, I can build a machine learning thing that will go on forever i can build a self-replicating fractal uh, that's a thing i can build that's something nature can build sure but it's not so much that the image is then producing. The image doesn't have that. Images don't reproduce. Images are produced. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let me tell you what I'm thinking, and then I'd mm -hmm. like to hear your thoughts. Um, so I don't know if we can say, like, if we can put ideal selves in terms of images, right? So uh, whether that be, like, what you see on Twitter or like even axiomatics of what an ideal, you know, person or civilian or, or self is like, that people then try to like internalize or form themselves too. And then they sort of propagate this formula for happiness or whatever. Um, how, how do you see that going about? I, I see it as mirroring, the one of the five paralogisms for this, I would probably even just say like it's strictly their version of how Oedipus gets sort of transmitted and, and moved around and how the psychoanalyst, uh, you know, basically replicates castration. Uh, you are as a subject introduced to images. I mean, you've already been there where you're, you're a capitalized subject, so it's not exactly an easy world, but at some point you're either working or you're not uh, sort of as a collection versus what the normative is. Let's say you're not Oedipalized. Let's say you're not sexy on social media. Let's say you don't use the right filters or know how to talk. Um, all of those things are a, a plea towards the normative. That image of Oedipalization, for example, or the, the triangulation of Oedipus uh, operates the same way. The desire for it is, isn't so much that I desire Oedipus or I desire to fuck my mom. It is that by being given the image of fucking my mom and... Uh, it being set up as uh, what it sort of is intended to play at, it subsumes desire and then creates a secondary desire after effect almost, uh, the referent, uh, I think they call it. They, they have some very particular ways that desire plays with images when it's given. And I would say it's, it's identical um, in this specific case too. I want to be sexier on social media. How do I do it? It's not so much that you have necessarily even an idealized self as a singular image. It's that you have um, the idea of success, uh, whatever it may be, if that makes sense. Uh, a white picket fence, uh, a wife, uh, a white family uh, with one car, two and a half kids. Uh, one is apparently just legs and a torso, uh, but also a dog. And you go through that, and that's the image you have. This is not how anything turns out. The image is dead, but we're given it as an object of desire and it manipulates desire towards a secondary image that does become more instinctual, more ingrained, more pre-conscious or unconscious because of how it operates uh, and plays with desiring machines connecting. They go through this, and it's uh, the, the paralogisms are actually probably the best way to sort of describe how these things work because they're very focused on um, these elements. Um, and there's it's... It's not easy because this is actually like, there's a reason this is an entire chapter and, and a half really. 
Um, let's see. Let's go with uh, which paralogism would be easiest. Um, here, uh, application. Um, uh, here, here we go. It's a Lacan critique. This will be a good one for you, Ken, I think, um, because you have a far bigger background in this, and I think you might be able to connect things I don't. Um, it is worth noting one further advance to losing Guattari make over Lacan. Like him, they recognize the importance of semiotics for understanding the unconscious, but schizoanalysis is a materialist semiotics, which in the present connection means that the nuclear family itself as a social institution and an ensemble of material practices is understood to constitute a system of representation just as much as do psychoanalysis and its discursive analysis of the Oedipus complex. Indeed, for schizoanalysis, the real nuclear family is, if anything, a more important system of representation than are the discourse and practice. If Oedipal representations of desire register so forcefully on the body without organs and so often succeed in displacing and trapping desire in Oedipal subjectivity, it is first and foremost because that is the way desires actually lived at the heart of the nuclear family. Yet that in no way legitimates claims of universality made by psychoanalysis in the name of Oedipus. On the contrary, it points up the historical specificity of the nuclear family as an institution of reproduction and adds urgency to the calls made by schizoanalysis to bring psychoanalysis to the point of self-criticism. Uh, not only is the nuclear family as a social institution the basis for Oedipalized subjects and Oedipal representations of desire, historically speaking, it is only the latest in a long line of social institutions responsible for the construction of fixed subjectivities. The play that they're making here and how capital works within this is desire is produced by humans, little babies all the way through. The nuclear family conditions these things. They become basically the filters that images play through and they become interpreters for this, this new human, this new organism, and tell them what things are. They play the role of, uh, early on, they reference the moment language changed to representation where you have uh, a slave uh, in old Roman times, I think it was the, the Philistines, um, not sure, um, doesn't matter, um, sees a sign, the sign on it has the symbol for water, um, has a symbol A, and A means water. Um, the slave asks one of the wealthy, hey, but what is that sign? What is that? And he goes, oh, that, that's water. Now we're no longer in a place where that letter matters. Now we've been taught the image. The image is the thing that comes first. We've shifted. Imagery and representation have changed. This is true of parents and children. So images are given as the way things ought to be or what things are, almost the platonic ideals of, of life. And desire starts trying to reach at them. Think of it as tentacles trying to grab at it, but it's dead. Images don't do shit for you. They don't connect. You can't fuck a magazine. I mean, that came out wrong. I've, I've been on 4chan, but like my, you can't fuck an image. Like you can fuck a person, but otherwise you end up with these neurotic, perverted, weird setups where you're trying to fuck an image, but it's a real person. How's that work? And you're all jumbled and fucked up. And this is our interplay for desire to images. They don't do anything for us. They're dead, but we want them. God, do we want them. We want them so much. So very, very, very much. And they're grabbing all the time, but they just, we just can't get them. And so this desire becomes manipulated and changed and fucked up. If that makes sense, Ken, before you leave, I hope that ramble at least helped a little bit. Yeah, no, it definitely did. And it makes sense. Um, 
you become misrecognized as something for another and they sort of tell you what things are. Yeah, um, and you end up with a desire of the image rather than the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. That makes sense. Thanks, yeah. Brooks. Oh, dude, anytime. I miss you, by the way. I miss you, buddy. Uh, Ken is uh, one of the old heads around here. Uh, you, you'll see occasional people who were here literally the first week of the server. Um, and Ken is one of those. Stuck with us for too many readings and then dipped out. He's, he's, he is a Jungian, but he's not a bad Jungian. He's good. He's, he's trying, he, I like his work. I like what he's trying to read. I like his interpretations of stuff because he's coming at it from what I consider to be the part that matters, which is how do we actually make people better and fix them, but without having it be an idealized version of what a fixed person looks like. Oh, you fucking are a union too. Goddamn red book people everywhere surrounding me. Um, I hope that ramble helped. Um, I want to read the last paragraph. We're going to get out of here. Uh, someone who likes, uh, uh, I mean, someone who thinks, uh, myths are the best thing in the history of the world and, uh, likes tarot cards usually. It's a, it's a fun insult that really pisses off Jungians. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to read the last paragraph and then we'll uh, talk. Uh, or did I already read it? I don't think I read it yet. Doubtless these illusions would not take hold if they did not benefit from a coincidence and a support in the unconscious itself that ensures the hold. We have seen what this support was. Primal repression as exerted by the body without organs at the moment of repulsion at the heart of molecular desiring production without this primal repression a psychic repression in the proper sense of the word could not be delegated in the unconscious by the molar forces and thus crush desiring production repression properly speaking profits from an occasion without which it could not interfere in the machinery of desire in contrast to psychoanalysis, which itself falls into the trap while causing the unconscious to fall into its trap, schizoanalysis follows the lines of escape in the machinic indices all the way to the desiring machines. If the essential aspect of the destructive task is to undo the Oedipal trap of repression, properly speaking, and all its dependencies each time in a way adapted to the case in question, the essential aspect of the first positive task is to ensure the machinic conversion of primal repression there too in an adapted variable manner, which is to say undoing the blockage or the coincidence on which the repression properly speaking relies transforming the apparent opposition of repulsion, the body without organs, the machines, partial objects into a condition of real functioning, ensuring this functioning in the forms of attraction and production of intensities. Thereafter, integrating the failures in the attractive functioning, as well as enveloping the zero degree in the intensities produced, and thereby causing the desiring machines to start up again. Such is the delicate and focal point that fills the function of transference in schizoanalysis, dispersing, schizophrenizing the perverse transference of psychoanalysis.
um, undoing the blockage or the coincidence on which the repression, properly speaking, relies, transforming the apparent opposition of repulsion into a condition of real functioning. Um, it's a hell of a thing. It's a great ending to a paragraph. Mm -mm. Very nice. Um, I'll leave it open for questions or anything on this. Uh, I do believe this generally holds itself, but we will next week be doing two hours straight on this section and everything inside of it. Um, because we have a few things I want to make sure I understand. I want to go over a few times. I want to spend a little bit of time thinking. And then the last bit um, will be following this. And it is the second positive task, which is, um, I think, far more complicated. Um, I think the task so far, it's, hey, uh, get rid of the images and representation that a person believes are real and are actually dead. Oh, okay, yeah, I think I can kind of get that. That matches a lot of... Uh, uh, even wine mom sayings like that's a uh, cool. I get that. Oh, uh, find the things within the person that are actually functioning. Find the moment of repression and repulsion and, and really make it a lived experience thing rather than just purely that find the moment that the trap happens, find the moment that the image is being repulsed and things are being shifted. Oh, that's a little tougher, but oh, okay. I can kind of get that. It's a, uh, the lived experience of a thing that people actually experience versus the, I don't want that. That's gross, but you never, but you've never experienced anything like it. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, my son yells all the time. I hate carrots. Um, when was the last time you had them yesterday? Did you eat all of them? Yes. Do you love carrots? Okay. Uh, it's not far from that as far as the, the second positive task. It's a lot more complicated because we're a lot more complicated people, but um, where is the repulsion happening and identifying the machines at it, making it work again. Um, and Ash, if you feel that way about carrots, uh, if I may, you take carrots and a little bit of orange juice. Uh, cut them up very nicely, but you can take big ones, Ziploc baggy. Uh, put all the orange juice, like a, I don't know, like a quarter cup, like you want the carrots to be able to be pretty covered, but not like soaking, they're not swimming. Just enough to like get them going, a little bit of butter. Uh, seal up that Ziploc bag, put it in a thing, boil it. Boil it for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever. Uh, pull it out, best carrot you'll ever have in your life. Lazy time. There you go. So the DGQC recipes uh, will continue next week. Um, we'll be discussing sous viding. Uh, overall, uh, and it's a general implication on the nature of how the imminent experience of cooking is shifted as you sous vide. Uh, I look forward to it, and we will be carrying over a lot of 4.4 next week. Thank all of you for joining us. Uh, this was awesome. Uh, as always, it's the highlight of my week. Thank you very much. Thank you.